Welcome to Sunday Sermons from the Williamsburg Community Chapel, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 17. We're going to be in verses 16 through 34, and I'll read the last five verses for us now as we prepare to hear from Dale South, who will help us continue in our series where we're looking at what it means to be the chosen instruments of Jesus' church. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagites, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. There are only 13 verses that I'm aware of in the entire New Testament that details a Christian proclaiming the good news of Jesus to people who were completely unfamiliar with the Bible, biblically illiterate and unaware. We have three verses in Acts 14, when Paul was preaching in Lystra, very superstitious, uneducated group. We have these 10 verses in Acts 17 that were just read for us. And uh, these verses... In both, both sermons, actually, we don't even get a full sermon because before Paul could finish preaching, he was carted off or they, people shouted him down. So he didn't even get to finish his message. But these, these 13 verses give us an idea of, of what it would be to, to preach the gospel to someone without biblical awareness. And so in our passage, Paul's team members had escorted him to Athens and temporarily left him there alone because people from where he had previously preached wanted to kill him. So in verse 16, Paul's there in Athens and he sees the pantheon of the Greek gods and and he he says his spirit was stirred and troubled and provoked within him when he saw this city that was filled with idols. See, during that time period, a Roman named Gaius Petronius joked uh, that there were so many idols in the city of Athens that it was much easier to find an idol than a man. Um, Another writer, historian, stated that there were some 30,000 idols in Athens at the time. Now, why was Paul so stirred up and troubled and provoked by all of the idolatry that he found in the city? I think we need to to just reflect on There, There are two really bad outcomes of idolatry. Uh, The first that I can see is that it steals worship from God that only he deserves to have. And the second is that idolatry deceives people. There's probably a lot more than two, but idolatry deceives people and it leads them to devote themselves to things that just cannot save them. So we know that they're putting their trust in something that is ultimately going to disappoint in a big way. And when followers of Jesus... You and I, when we are not stirred up, when we are not troubled, when we are not provoked by people trusting in idols, 
It's, it's sort of like, to me, uh, knowing that a skydiver has mistakenly put on a backpack instead of a parachute. And we say, wouldn't have been my choice, have a good jump. Instead, we see Paul here getting stirred up because he knew these people were deceived. It was like they had on a backpack instead of a parachute. And let's note what Paul did not do. Paul was really provoked, but he did not lash out saying, you bunch of idol-worshiping pagans, if I could, I'd smash every single one of your 30,000 so-called gods and I'd throw them into the dump so that they could be burned. It's probably what he was feeling inside. Instead, verse 17 says, he reasoned with them. Now, if Paul had been in a synagogue or a Jewish setting and he saw idols on display there, you, you can bet his response would have been much harsher. But, but these were not unfaithful Jews he was talking to here. These were biblically illiterate Gentiles. So there are different contexts called for different approaches. Now, some of us have like a one-note band. We just have the same approach for everybody. And sometimes it's a hammer and, and sometimes it's, you know, just a silk glove. But this idea has a big word here, contextualization. That's, that's our big word. And it, it's the idea of communicating the message in a way that is understandable, appealing, culturally relevant without compromising the original message. We want the gospel to be understandable. We want the gospel to be beautiful, but we don't want the gospel to get lost by overly making it so attractive. So we don't change the truth of the gospel, but we do absolutely change how we communicate the gospel. There was a, a Jewish synagogue in the city of Athens, and Paul went there on the Sabbath days to reason also with the Jews and the God-fearers there, mostly we know that when he went to the synagogue, he used Old Testament scriptures as, as they were read about him in many of his other synagogue sermons. He would use fulfillment of prophecy to show Jesus how he fulfilled the Old Testament passages. But however, on the other days of the week when Paul didn't go to the synagogue, he went to the marketplace, the Agora. The Agora was not just a market that sold food and goods. It, it was a marketplace of ideas. It, it was a marketplace uh, of culture. Athens had been the center of philosophical uh, beauty for 400 years earlier with Socrates and Aristotle and Plato. It had declined some, but it still had a lot of learned people considered itself to be very, very wise. And so these people would go to the marketplace, and, and many of the people in that marketplace were worshiping some of those 30,000 gods that Paul was so stirred up about. However, in verse 18... We, we see Paul also conversed with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who did not worship these idols. But these highly educated, uh, intelligent, supposedly wise philosophers, turns out they were just as clueless about Jesus and Paul's preaching as were the idol worshipers. So Paul is addressing people who, on one hand, are, are very much involved with false gods, and he's also addressing people who don't believe in any gods. The philosophers uh, really did not understand Paul's beliefs, but he did understand their beliefs. I think that's one of the points we want to see, is that Paul had learned their beliefs. 
Paul knew what the Epicurean philosophers believed. They believed the world and people came by this collision of atoms and materialism. They did not believe uh, gods lived in temples or that gods were really even involved in human affairs. The Epicureans did not believe that uh, gods needed anything from humans. They did not believe in life after death. So their thought was your best life is to have meaningful, good relationships that bring happiness and wholeness into your life. But Paul also knew quite a bit about the Stoic philosophers. They believed that God is near. They were pantheists. They believed that God was in everything all around us. He was very close. They believed that God provided for humans. They believed that God ruled over the world. And their idea of your best life now is just self-sufficiency and autonomy. Don't show emotion. Never let them see you sweat. In 1718, uh, Paul's hearers, this is Acts 17, not the year 1718. Um, his hearers say he seems to be a preacher of foreign gods. Now, Paul, Paul's basically unaware, biblically illiterate audience spoke of foreign gods in the plural here because Paul was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. So it turns out that, that Paul was preaching, they thought, about two distinct gods, Jesus and Anastasia. Anastasia is the Greek word for resurrection. So they said, he's bringing two new gods into our city here, this one Jesus and this other one Anastasia. They, they were just completely clueless. And so Verse 19 tells us that they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. The, the word took him here literally means to take hold of, as in to grasp or to apprehend. It was a word using of arresting someone. And then they brought him, which literally means they led him or carried him. So Paul wasn't, it was, it was an invitation you couldn't refuse, okay? Uh, Paul, Paul was invited to the Areopagus by force. The Areopagus was really a rocky hill. If you've ever been to Athens, you'd get to see this rock of, called Mars Hill or, or Hill of Ares. And the Areopagus not only refers to the physical rock in place on the hillside, but it refers to a council of governing officials, sort of like a city council or a senate, who at one point in time held their meetings on that rock. One of the duties of the Areopagus this council was to decide which gods were to be accepted and which were be re to be rejected by the, the pantheon of gods. Now, it's hard to imagine any of them being rejected with the 30,000 that they had. <clears throat> Their bar was pretty low. But it appears these governing officials in the Areopagus wanted to know how Paul was going to meet their requirements for these new gods, Jesus and resurrection, that he was promoting. Scholar Bruce Ware has done some great research and found out that in order for a new God to be accepted into the Greek pantheon of gods, those who promoted the new God would need to buy a piece of land. Then they would need to build an altar or a temple for the God to be worshipped at. And then they would need to provide at least once a year some sort of an annual feast in honor of the God. And then they would need to support monetarily any priest of the gods if there were to be any. So when Paul was forced to go before this governing council 
he, he used the interview as this opportunity to declare the gospel about the rule and reign of God through Jesus. See, Paul did not see himself as being dragged to the Areopagus by the people. Paul saw himself as being sent to the Areopagus by God. We are a sent people. And I'd like to focus on how Paul found points of contact between what his audience believed and biblical truth. And then we're going to look at how those points of contact led to be able to confront points of conflict between what is here is believed and biblical truth. There's a repeated pattern we've actually seen uh, throughout our sermon series here on uh, Jesus' church, uh, God's family, on God's mission. When Travis preached earlier about Daniel and then about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, he talked about both engaging the culture and resisting the culture. Uh, when, when Rich spoke, he preached about not floating in the culture, not fleeing the culture, not fighting in the culture, but staying faithful to God's truth in the culture. You see, the big idea for this morning is that the gospel of Jesus Christ has both points of contact and conflict with every culture and every belief system in the world. There are things that we want to engage. There are things that we want to resist. Now, as followers of Jesus, I believe we need to address both contact and conflict. And if we do not see ourselves as being sent by God, we're, we're going to find all kinds of things to do to occupy our time. And we're going to find all kinds of reasons not to go to the trouble of engaging our culture with the gospel. I, I believe much of Jesus' teaching used this same approach, found points of contact, found points of conflict. In the Sermon on the Mount, we see this great example. Jesus is repeatedly saying, you have heard it said this. Okay, there's a point of contact. But he said, but I, I'm telling you this about my kingdom. That's a point of conflict. It's sometimes easier for Christians to find points of conflict with the culture than it is for us to find the points of contact. You see, it's not a good thing, though, when we always lead with points of conflict, because I don't think that usually leads people closer to Jesus or closer to his church. Beyond that, it just isn't what we see in the Bible. We don't see it with Daniel. We don't see it with Esther. We don't see it with Paul. And most importantly, I don't think we see it with Jesus. If we can't find points of contact between God's truth and the culture, we're not able to engage the culture. But the truth is, we're probably just not looking hard enough for those points of contact. Maybe, when truth be told, we're as unaware of why our culture believes what it believes as they are unaware of the Bible's truths and why followers of Jesus believe what we believe. You see, Daniel and his cohort learned the language. They learned the literature. They learned the culture of the Babylonian pagans to which they were sent. Jesus learned the language and he learned the, the, the culture 
He learned the literature to the world in which he was sent. Paul learned the language and the literature and the culture of the worlds he was sent. And you and I need to learn the context of the culture as well as the truths of the gospel if we're going to find those points of contact between the two. However, if we only go to the points of contact and we never confront the points of conflict between God's truths and the culture's beliefs, those who are unaware of the gospel won't know the truth to believe and we won't know the lies to resist. See, the, the danger of over-contextualizing to make the gospel fit the culture rather than redeeming it, rather than transforming it, just trying to fit in, there's another big word for that one. Missiologists use it, it's called syncretism. Syncretism is the blending of Christian beliefs and practices with those of the dominant culture so that Christianity loses its distinctiveness and it speaks with a voice reflective of its culture more than reflective of Scripture. Now, if we mix the God to the culture with the gospel, our message is no longer the true gospel. It's no longer the power of God for salvation. So Paul models how to contextualize the gospel in these 10 verses of his speech in Acts chapter 17. And most of Paul's sermons in the synagogues, as we mentioned already, quoted several Old Testament passages that showed Jesus to be the fulfillment of God's promises made in the Old Testament. But Paul's recorded message in verses 22 to 31 of Acts 17 is quite different. It doesn't even contain one single Bible verse. And although Paul is not quoting Bible verses, he is absolutely proclaiming biblical truths to his biblically ignorant audience. New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce observes, like the biblical revelation itself, his speech begins with God, the creator of all. It continues with God, the sustainer of all, and it concludes with God, the judge of all, without ever using a Bible verse. C.S. Lewis's classic work, Mere Christianity, is another example of this kind of reasoning to people who are plenty intelligent but do not have the knowledge of the one true God. So let's see how Paul uses the cultural points of contact with the gospel to find common ground. And then let's watch how he uses those points of contact with biblical truths as a launching pad to confront the culture's beliefs where they conflict with biblical truth. We already know from verse 16 that Paul was stirred up, troubled, provoked by all the idolatry that he saw in Athens. And yet the very first words of this very troubled, provoked man, the very first words out of Paul's mouth were, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. See, even though their religiosity was misguided, and even though Paul was deeply disturbed Paul found this point of contact with their interest in spiritual things, and he affirmed their spiritual search. Today, he might have said, oh, I can tell you all are really spiritual. And in his introduction, Paul finds uh, another point of contact with his pagan, Ill biblically illiterate audience by referring 
to their altar to an unknown God. And archaeologists have found a number of these kind of unknown gods where people didn't want to miss worshiping a God that might get angry because he wasn't being worshiped. So they had a, a statue to the unknown God. And having been accused of introducing two new gods that were very strange to the Athenians, Paul artfully declared, said, I'm not introducing any new gods at all. You know, the, the God that I am introducing to you is the one true God, the one that you don't know, this unknown God that you have never come to know. I know him. He actually has been made knowable. He's actually come here in the person of Jesus. Paul hadn't gotten that far yet, but, but that's, that's where he's going to end up. So as Paul describes the one God he worships, it becomes clear he, he's not seeking approval from the Areopagus for his gods. He has absolutely no desire to make Jesus one more object of worship in a line of 30,000 others. No, Jesus is going to be the exclusive object of his worship. He wants them to know the true God. He wants them to repent and to turn away from idolatry and false gods, and he wants them to turn to the one true God they do not know because he's the only God that can actually save them. Now, the first requirements, as we recall from Bruce Ware's research for the governing council had for including new gods in the pantheon, was they needed to purchase land. Paul, Paul's response here is that this God doesn't need any physical accommodations that the Areopagus required for idolatrous objects of worship. On the contrary, this God created the whole world and everything in it. This God is the Lord of heaven and earth. There's no need to buy land because this God already owns it all. They were also then told they needed to build an altar or a temple. Paul says there's no need to build a temple because this God does not live in temples made by human hands. And then they were to have this feast that was going to honor the gods. Because see, the idols had to be fed to keep them happy. Paul says there's no need for an annual feast because this God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything else. See, Paul, Paul does not quote scripture in these 10 verses, but he does quote two Stoic poets. And, and the fact that he quoted these poets does not mean that he endorsed everything that they wrote. He used their words to make a point of contact between the culture and God's truth. These people were blind to God, however. He didn't stop with the point of contact. He moved to drive home the point that although they were some of the most learned, wise people on the planet, his hearers had remained ignorant of this unknown God, even though he had always been in their midst. They'd been groping around in spiritual blindness, trying to find him, the God in whose image they were made. But the true God was still unknown to them. So Paul goes on after establishing their ignorance, which was a great point of conflict. In verse 30, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but that's about to change. Because now... He commanded all people everywhere to repent. 
to turn away from their ignorance, to turn away from the false gods and the idols, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And in verse 31, Paul explains that God indicated the man he had appointed to judge the world in righteousness. He indicated who that was by raising him from the dead. None other than the resurrected Jesus. Now, Paul is essentially saying, you may think that you brought me here to judge whether the God I proclaim to you is worthy of your pantheon. But in reality, it is the God I proclaim to you who will judge you and all of the other 30,000 plus idols that you worship. The God Paul preached wanted only one thing from the people of Athens, and he wanted them to turn away from their false worshiping God, the worship of false gods, and they wanted them to worship him. He was making known to them the unknown God. And when Paul declared that the man God approved to judge the world in righteousness had been raised from the dead, he touched on what may have been one of the biggest points of conflict for the Greek culture and the Greek mind. You see, many Greeks viewed the body as a prison that we needed to be set free from, not something that they found desirable to inhabit for eternity. It was a big point of conflict, and at that point, the message basically stopped. There was a mixed reaction. Paul's proclamation of the resurrection from the dead, uh, some sneered, others yet asked to hear more. And we need to realize that, that Luke did not give us every word for word like a transcript of every single word that Paul spoke to the Areopagus. Luke, Luke doesn't record Paul talking about the cross of Jesus in this passage, but we, we cannot imagine Paul talking about Jesus being resurrected without having talked about his death on the cross. Ultimately, we find also that a few did come to saving faith, which could not have happened without the announcement of forgiveness made possible through Jesus' sacrifice. So what can we take away from Paul's message to the Areopagus? One thing is that I, I believe one of the reasons the church is not having a greater impact on our dominant culture for God's kingdom and glory has something to do with the fact that I just don't believe that we're troubled. We're not stirred. We're, we're not provoked by all of the idolatry around us. We're not upset that God is being deprived of worship that he alone deserves to receive. And sometimes it seems like we're more upset by the sin and lifestyle of unbelievers than by the fact that those unbelievers have been deceived by false gods who cannot save them, like a skydiver with a backpack who needs a parachute. We're often more troubled, more stirred up, more provoked by politics and the sins of other people than we are our own sins. Another thing for me as a takeaway is that Paul was not only upset by all this idolatry, he had great compassion for the idolaters. 
And he knew that he was chosen and sent by God to them. He made it a point to go to the marketplace of ideas every day and to reason with these pagan, biblically ignorant idolaters about the truth of the gospel and their need to turn away from false gods. And when he went to them with the gospel, he did not attack them, but he reasoned with them. He did not simply quote scripture to them, but he focused on points of contact between the beliefs and the gospel. And once he had made that common ground and found it, Paul went on to address the points of conflict in their belief system that would just have to change if they were going to follow Jesus and be saved. So before he talked specifically about Jesus, he, he did some necessary pre-evangelism, we might say, that his biblically ignorant audience would need in order to even make sense of Jesus. And why did he come? Why did he need to come? Why did he need to die? Why, why was there a need for forgiveness? Why did he need to re be resurrected? Paul dealt with the pre-evangelistic issues that made those questions more relevant and more understandable to his audience. And in the 13 recorded verses we find in the New Testament where Paul spoke to the biblically unaware, he explains seven primary doctrines of the Christian faith before he ever gets to Jesus. He talks about the, in those 10 verses, he talks about the God of, he talks about creation. He talks about the doctrine of God. He talks about the doctrine of human beings, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of repentance, the doctrine of common grace, and the doctrine of judgment. We have additional materials that are going to be with the slides on the website um, in the sermon follow-up. And again, the sermon follow-up will be back posted on the website each Sunday after the sermon. You see there, there's two places that you can find it. One is on the worship page, one is on the home page, little like book icon there. And you can, can look more at these doctrines and you can look at the nine, the three verses in, from Lystra and the 10 verses from Athens and, and uh, find some materials on there that will help us to put into practice. What are some of the points of contact with our culture? What are some of the points of conflict? How can we, like Jesus and Paul, reason in a way that points to the truth of the gospel? So the big idea, the gospel of Jesus has points of contact and points of conflict with every culture and belief system. Thank you for joining us today. Here at the Williamsburg Community Chapel, we are all about making disciples of Jesus Christ. So wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we are excited to help you connect to Christ and His community. Have a blessed day.